Flip to Romans chapter 3 with me if you have a Bible. We're going to look at Romans 3, 21 to 31. We're just working our way through the book, and I may take a break from it here and there uh, in the future. We'll see, depending on how, how, how things go. <laughs> week to week, it's always a, a question mark. Um, but Romans chapter 3, uh, we're going to finish this chapter. Lord willing, next week we're going to get into the, the uh, awesome section of, of Abraham. So we're talking about the faithfulness of Christ. So let's read the text and pray, and then we'll get to work. These are the words of God, Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. This righteousness of God comes through the faithfulness in or of Jesus Christ to all upon who, excuse me, and upon all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood for a demonstration of His righteousness. Because his, in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins previously committed to prove His righteousness at this present time so that He might be just and be the justifier of him who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the works of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God, who shall justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then make the law void through faith? God forbid. Heavens, no. Instead, we establish the law. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered to confess both our inadequacy and your utter sufficiency. We have given, uh, you have given us your Son as a true and better mercy seat, and because of that we rejoice. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are faithful and obedient all the way to the cross. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have illumined our, uh, illuminated our minds. So we ask, dear Trinity, for your guidance as we open up your word. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So uh, I think we're, if we're honest with ourselves, truth be told, we are accustomed to reading our Bibles a certain way, and this is largely due to, to some combination of these two things. One is our developed presuppositions, and two, our undeveloped presuppositions. And, and just, you know, I've heard some scholars say this before, uh, just because I didn't say everything doesn't mean that I'm saying nothing, uh, or, or that I don't believe something, worse yet. <laughs> you can't say everything there is to say, and so I'm going to try to do my best to take a very meaty passage and try to parse it down so it's a little, little easier. So on the one hand, we have all of the traditions and customs that shape us and mold us. So think about Protestantism over against Romanism, for example. And on the other hand, we are also finite creatures who don't know everything. We don't know everything there is to know. And there are some presuppositions that we don't have that we very well need to have. And that's the goal of sanctification, in large part, is just trying to figure out which presuppositions we should probably have, otherwise we might mess things up. 
So that is not to say that the Bible is unintelligible. We believe in the perspicuity of, of Scripture. It is perspicuous. It's clear. And that means the Bible really is never the problem. We are the problem. It's our, it's our wrongheadedness and, and stiff-neckery, stiff we'll call that a word, uh, that makes it a problem. So when we come to a passage like this, there are a lot of undeveloped presuppositions which give way to assumptions about the meaning of what the Apostle Paul intends to say here. So I want you to know I'm not speaking from this ivory tower of seclusion, but I'm speaking of someone who has had his own presuppositions and assumptions challenged very, very much. What I'm talking about is basically the meaning of certain words that are in this passage. Certain words and phrases like the righteousness of God. What is the righteousness of God? Certain words like justified or justification. Um, righteousness and justification come from the same root words. Uh, they're ver different verbal forms and so on, but they're basically stemming from the same, same idea. Also, there's this phrase here, faith in Christ or faithfulness of Christ, which we'll get to. So this, this passage, I just want you to know, it's been heavily, heavily argued and debated, uh, and especially in recent years. So anytime someone wants to nuance something, uh, we can be tempted to write them off as, you know, they're pedantic exegesis fussers. So we must just ignore what they say. We, mu we shouldn't write people off like that. Instead, we should be careful to read the passage. We should check the historical background. We should draw our conclusions from there. So that's what we're going to do uh, with this section of Scripture. So before we jump in, and, and you kids can imagine this as well, just stop, take a deep breath, imagine for a moment that you are on this long Lord of the Rings type of quest, all right? You have been given a task, you are on this quest, and you have to travel through various environments, and you have to reach this final mountain. This is the final mountaintop where you can see the rest of the world. Uh, you know, Middle Earth sort of experience, I guess. This is the zenith, this is the pinnacle, this is the apex of the entire quest. You have to get to the top of that mountain. So the long road that you've traveled, you've arrived to this grand moment. Paul's main thesis in the entire book, as I see it, is this mountain right here. This is that experience. Um, it's not as though we reach the mountain, though, and everything's over, you know, might as well go home sort of thing. Rather, we reach this mountain, we see the pinnacle of what Paul's arguing, and we head back down the mountaintop experience seeing it not only as a transformation, it's a true experience of the gospel. I mean, this is the heart of the gospel message right here in these verses. Not only that, but it allows you to see things the way God intends you to see them. Uh, I've always, I'm typically afraid of heights, but anytime I have gone on a high, think of a roller coaster or some sort of mountain view, it's fascinating how a different perspective can affect you. Oh, so this is what Shenandoah does that. You think of the whole area from Shenandoah Mountains all the way to Warrington, and you get up there and you see and you look out and you're like, wow, okay, that's fascinating. There's some farmland over here, some more trees, and a house way in the distance. It changes your perspective. This is that mountain. This is that perspective. 
So let's look at our text and you can just follow along in verse by verse and I'm going to make some explanations, uh, explanatory comments um, as we go. So in verse 21, Paul continues his train of thought from the last section by declaring that God's covenant justice, that's his righteousness. When you see the phrase, the righteousness of God, just think his covenant justice. Think that, think that phrase. We know, Paul says, that it's revealed. But notice he says, but now. I don't know what translations you guys have, but does it say, but now? That's, that's, that's good, because the Greek means, but now. <laughs> Um, so genius this is great but now which really is an eschatological term the coming of Messiah launched the new heavens and new earth project that's the idea but now he was describing things as they were the sin of man God revealed himself in creation all these things from Romans 1 goes into Romans 2 but now we're here so quite literally we can say that the gospel unveils the justice of God that's the point but now, ah, we have the gospel. It unveils the justice of God. It is unveiled, he says, both apart from the law and in accordance to the law and the prophets, which you might think, man, that seems contradictory. Well, it's, it's not. The Old Testament gives witness to the purpose of history, which is namely the revelation of Jesus Christ. And not only did the law and the prophets speak to it, Paul says that Jesus came apart from the law. That is, and this is my own conjecture, um, I think I'm right, could be wrong, but I think Paul means is that Jesus came apart from the law's current, the Torah's current abuse, and what he's been critiquing in chapter 2. And I'll play that out. He didn't come to keep the Jews and the Gentiles separated, which was a major problem in the early church for Jews and Gentiles, and of course... Galatians and the Judaizing heresy tells us the same thing. So no, he, he, didn't, he didn't come in that manner. He didn't come to say, all right, the program of holiness and separation is still on. No, he abolished the wall of partition, Paul says in the book of Ephesians. That is gone. He didn't come in that manner. He came, from, he came apart from that paradigm and that whole world and life view. He came as a sinless person. Jesus was not condemned by the law, like Paul will tell us later, like in Romans chapter 8 uh, and, and other places too. He didn't come as a man who had sin, therefore the law condemned him. He came as a transcendent God-man outside of the law's condemnatory jurisdiction. I think that's what Paul's getting at here. So in that sense, he came apart from the law. So the, the main issue is this, God will not allow humanity to exist in an indefinite and perpetual state of rebellion, nor will he allow his covenant people to remain helpless transgressors of his gracious law. So he came for the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles were far off. The Jews had it. They all broke it. They were all guilty. That was his point in chapter two and part of his point here. So Jesus came to deal with that issue. So the gospel deals with Jews, the gospel deals with Gentiles, all of which are in the dock awaiting judgment. Only the gospel exonerates because only Jesus took the punishment that justice demands. That's the idea. So you can't get exoneration on your own terms. You don't get to go to the judge and say, I've been a great person. 
Um, I'm nice. I help the old lady cross the street. Do, do they do that? Any, do the old ladies still cross the street? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I helped her with my Uber job. I don't know. <laughs> Got to modernize that maybe. So you can't, you can't do that on your own. You must look to Christ. That's what Paul stresses here. And now verse 22. In verse 22, we come to one of those verses that, again, is not without debate. Uh, a verse that I have uh, personally and periodically looked into well over a decade now. Uh, I remember wrestling with it in seminary. That was back when the John Piper N.T. Wright debate was really going on. The meaning, the meaning of what Paul says in verse 22 is this. God's saving justice comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all those who trust in him. For everyone is in the dock, right? And how do we know that? According to verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So there's debate on whether or not, you see that phrase in verse 22, faith in Jesus Christ? Pistis Jesu Christu, Greek. Is it objective? Is it an objective genitive? Or is it a subjective genitive? Does it mean faith in Christ? Or in, in the Greek language, does it mean the faithfulness of Christ? Now, I think ultimately he means both. And other passages like Philippians 3, which we read, emphasize it differently. You can't just look at the Greek language and say, oh, it means this. Because it's ambiguous just by looking at it. You have to look at the context to try and get an idea of what, what it is he's getting at. I'm convinced he means the faithfulness of Christ, which is applied in a distinct manner for those who believe. So, in other words, Jesus and his work is what makes up the content of the gospel. It's Jesus Christ's work. We can't just say, well, God gave us the gospel and not define it. He's defining it here. The revelation of God's faithfulness and his saving righteousness and his justice is a person, Jesus. It's someone. It wasn't an idea. God didn't just um, drop, drop down to earth this idea. Oh, if everyone just believes in this undefined idea, then we'll be fine. God didn't say, well, man's reason's going to save him. No, none of those things save. It's Jesus who is the content. He is the saving righteousness and justice of God. So, follow the thought here, all meaning Jew and Gentile, which includes all of you in this room, we have sinned, we've fallen short of the glory of God. All mankind is in Adam, and Adam, according to Jewish tradition, lost his glory. It's a pretty common, normal Jewish belief. So Adam and Eve had glory, they disobeyed, God expelled them, and they lost their glory. And Paul picks it up in 1 Corinthians and other places. When we, some, another word for heaven or this new heavens, new earth is, well, someday we'll be in glory. So it, we had it, we lost it, we're going to get it back because of Jesus. So all have sinned, we fall short of God's glory, and yet, look at verse 22, man can be given a judicial declaration from the judge an absolution of guilt and liability. That is a very real thing. Redemption, this new exodus of all men who were enslaved in Egypt, the Egypt being sin, is available in Christ as a free act of grace from God. That's the heart of the gospel right there. 
What Paul is saying here is that future exoneration from the final judgment can be given to God's people now in the present based on the sacrifice of Christ. We like to flatten it out and just say, well, I believed in Jesus, I get to go to heaven. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. But it's, it's way better than that. And, and you, How could you beat that? Well, it's thicker than that. It's, don't thin, make it flattened out and thin it to the point where it's just nothing. It's, it's much thicker than just that. In Christ, because of his sacrifice, you get the future verdict from the final judgment today. That's the point of justification. Justification is God's lawful and legal declaration. Okay, you want to know what the definition is? Here it is. It's God's lawful and legal declaration that a person is forgiven, a person is acquitted on all charges, and is now in the right, that's what righteousness is, in the right relationship with God based on Christ's death and resurrection. And let me say it differently because you may not feel the weight of this discussion, but 500 years ago, this was the, one of the main issues in the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of justification by faith. Um, Luther's objections in, in 1517, which kind of spread across Europe, Calvin's influence, and a whole bunch of others. Those are kind of the, the giants, if you will. This was the issue, justification by faith. So we have to define it right, because it's defined wrongly in other quarters of uh, quote-unquote Christendom. Justification is an act of God whereby a new people with, a new, with new statuses and a new covenant in a new age are fashioned for a renewed purpose. That's what it is. It's a legal declaration that a new people with new statuses, you're in the right, inside this new covenant, which is birthed out of this new age on the earth, are given a renewed purpose. So when, when one believes on Christ, he can receive a basically a prorated advance or a down payment on the future judgment. Why? Because Christ died in, in your place. That, that's our boast. So God put forth in verse 25... Jesus as a mercy seat. Do your Bible say propitiation? I don't know what version you have. Most of them will say propitiation. The, the Greek word is actually in reference to the mercy seat. Jesus is the mercy seat. Um, in, the, in the temple, you had the, the Ark of the Covenant and the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, um, Yom Kippur, they would go in and they would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was simply the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of that, you had the angels, the cherubim, sitting on the side. And that was the place where God had chosen to dwell with his people. That was it right there. And that's what everybody was looking forward to when, when he would come back. Ezekiel saw the glory of the temple leave. God's going to come back. Yahweh's going to return to his temple. And we know that Jesus fulfills that. He did return to his temple, found it leprous, needed to tear it down and destroy it, burn it. And he established a new temple, the people of God. But Paul's point here is that Jesus is literally the mercy seat. He is the mercy seat. Jesus is our mercy seat, the place where faith is to be placed, where atonement is to be made, where God was patient and long-suffering in the past, verse 25. But he has now come to be both just and the justifier of the one who believes, the one who has 
faith in Christ. That's verse 26. Now, I want to explain that um, phrase. What does it mean for God to be both just and the justifier? Why would the Apostle Paul say this type of thing? There are two seemingly uh, unsolvable problems that exist. I want to put you in the first century. So imagine we're in a house church in the first century. Uh, more like dirt floors and not, we don't have coloring books <laughs> or phones to keep babies happy uh, <laughs> or at least distracted for the moment. You're in the first century and there are two problems that exist and you're a Jewish person. You're, 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 you are, uh, you know, Michael Ben Adam, son of Adam or something. That's who you are. And you're in a gathering and maybe you go to synagogue weekly, you're participating and you're waiting for God to do something because you're, you're just on the edge of your seat. Something needs to change. Rome's in charge. We don't like them. They're pagans. God, when are you going to vindicate yourself? Two problems exist. One, Israel failed in her calling, proving that her doing of the Torah was no better than the Gentiles. That's the problem. Israel failed. Israel's doing of the Torah proved that they're no different than the Gentiles. That's Paul's argument. Two, second problem. If that's the case, does this mean that God's plan has failed? God gave promises to Abraham. He gave promises to David. He gave all these promises. Does it mean then, because the Jews are no better off than the Gentiles, because they too broke the law, does this, is this whole thing just one giant charade? We talked about that last week. Has God's plan failed? How can God fix this particular problem and remain just? Listen to Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. Don't miss this. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. That is a predicament. If the whole world's in sin, how can God be just and declare them to be just? It's an abomination. This is a major problem, <laughs> a huge problem. And the answer is the answer to the conundrum is the heart of the gospel message. God freely declares the unjust to be just, not out of coercion, not out of circumventing the justice system, not out of any of that, but by his grace in his son's sacrifice. No one forces God's hand. It was a free act of grace. And also, no one can force his hand by obeying the Torah and being a perfect little obedient person. That doesn't happen. We've already seen that. So there, there are two main issues at stake. You have the misuse of the law, that's the Jews, and a total abandonment of the law, the Gentiles who are outside the covenant. So Paul's primary concern is to display the grace of God in Christ and reestablish the covenant law for God's covenant purposes for the world. That's, that's his main issue here. So God is both the subject and the object of the atonement. He's the content and the book cover. He's all of it. Everything's his. Which means that he is the sacrifice in the atonement, and he's also the one affected by the sacrifice. Why? Ch children, you, you should know this. Why did Jesus Christ become a man? And this dates back to 
um, St. Uh, Anselm's book um, in Latin, Cures Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. Uh, the reason that God had to take on flesh was two reasons. One, Jesus had to be God because only he could be offered the perfect sacrifice. No human being could sacrifice himself in a way that would suffice the atonement. Why? Because, because it's just justice. Men are sinners. But he also had to be a man because man owed, owed the sacrifice. So he had to be God and man. That's the answer to the, to the predicament. So the only justification that can be had, which again, justification is a law court declaration of being in the right. The only justification that be, can be had is the justification of God. That's it. It's the only answer. There's no other boast. The cross proves that God is just in condemning sin in the flesh. And that's why Jesus was a man. And it also simultaneously proves that God is vindicated in that he conquers death and gives sinners his remarkable grace. So he is just, that is, he is faithful to his promises, and he is the justifier, meaning he's the one who handles the issue. He's both. Which is all to say, according to verse 27, that there is no boasting whatsoever for the Jew or the Gentile. There are two laws at play, the law of works of Torah and the law of faith in Christ. That's verse 28. The first doesn't justify, not when you've broken it. Again, the law is like glass. You don't just somewhat break glass. You break it, especially the uh, non-tempered glass. When it's broken, it's done. Uh, James says, you break one commandment, you've broken them all. Okay, so you can't obey it in a way that means you didn't break it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But so that law doesn't work. But there's another law at play here. He says it's the law of faith. It justifies. And the reason it does is because Christ secured it all. So you can't say one is justified works by works of the Torah. If you do, if you say that the only way to be right with God is by performing certain Jewish rituals, circumcision, Sabbath, new moon, those principles, there's a question in verse 29. Is he the God of Jews only? How do you bring Gentiles into a covenant and expect them to obey it when they don't have it? How, how is that, that going to work? You can't say yes to that. Well, God's only the God of the Jews. For Jewish exclusivity not only goes against the gospel, ironically, it goes against the very law of God and the entire point of calling Abraham into covenant. What did God tell Abraham? I'm going to bless the nations through you. You can't exclusivize the covenant like that. It's not for the Jews, it's for the world. So Paul invokes in verse 30 the Shema again, God is one. God is one is a hat tip to monotheism and election. Uh, he's already talked about that. There is one God, meaning there is one people of God and there is one program of God. Since this is the theology, then God has to provide another path, the law of faith. So both Jews, and, Jews the uncircumcised, and Gentiles the uncircumcised are justified by faith alone, not works of the law, which Gentiles don't even possess. Now, if you're a Jewish person listening to Paul explain this, you have a huge question on your mind. What about the Torah then? Are we just done with it? Christians have a problem with this today. 
What about the law of God? Are we just done with it then? If you're not justified by it and Christ came, well, whoa, what does that mean? Underline verse 31. <laughs> Do we get rid of the law of God? God forbid. He says we establish the law. Here's the passage. First, the righteousness of God, his covenant faithfulness and justice is revealed in the faithful Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth. God's plan to save the world continues on and now is secured because of Christ, despite man's utter unfaithfulness. Second, Jesus' faithfulness sent him to his death, which was a sacrificial death, no doubt. The one who is Israel's uh, excuse me, Isaiah's suffering servant, he secured a true and final atonement. No blood of goats will do, or bulls. Third, Jesus' self-giving faithfulness, even unto death, which was an act of God, not humans trying to earn something, turned away the divine wrath that was spoken of in chapter 1. God's wrath is revealed. Man sins. Anybody paying attention to what's going on lately in the world? Specifically, the unraveling of, you know, America. God's wrath. That's God's wrath. But Jesus' atonement fixes that. It intercedes. And fourth, because of the aforementioned items, there is a new covenant with a new family whose only boast is the faithfulness of the one true Israelite, Jesus Christ. All other boasting is thrown in the trash can. That's it. Your only boast is Christ. So, a few things to consider. Central to the Apostle Paul's vision of the gospel is the person and work of Jesus. What has God accomplished in Christ? Several things. One, God is just and he is in the right in his dealing impartial, impartially with sin. God shows no partiality. Two, he is faithful to the covenant by providing sinners a way out of condemnation. Sinners can get out of condemnation. Three, he is committed to saving those who call on him. The faithfulness of Christ is absolutely the mountaintop experience that I mentioned earlier. And the faithfulness of Christ is the linchpin of all Christian theology. If someone asks you, well, hey, what's the linchpin of all Christian theology? Because they'll talk like that. You say, the faithfulness of Christ. The faithfulness of Christ. That's the bedrock. That's the foundation. That's the linchpin on all of Christian theology. So the faithfulness of Christ was the means by which God's faithfulness is revealed. Those who put their faith in Christ banking completely on the faithfulness of Christ, are marked out as God's covenant people in history. You are not marked out as a Christian by trusting in your trust. When we trust Christ, we are trusting that God is right, that the gospel puts people right, and the death of Jesus puts the world to right. That's our confession. So this entire passage is all about the rearrangement and correction of all of what men think of themselves. We like to boast. See, in our day, various laws are competing for attention. Humanist law, for example, has been allowed to run pretty much unchecked, and this is largely due to the law of faith 
being relegated to a mere category of spiritual things. Oh, that's a spiritual matter. Well, we're over here dealing with, you know, white supremacists, <laughs> for example. If we want to be faithful to Christ as he is faithful to God, then we must recapture the design and the dynamic that is justifying faith. And I want to explain something because most of you probably grew up in this. I most certainly did. Many Christians make the mistake of seeing the law and the law on one hand and grace or faith on the other as being opposed to each other. I've heard this before. The Old Testament was then, this is now. Or my personal favorite, uh, God gave the law to Israel. They couldn't earn their salvation. So Jesus had to come in, in order to stop people from trying to earn their salvation. <laughs> because pastors and theologians have not done critical exegesis of a passage like this, they see what Paul is saying here as being just all too simplistic. Man sins... Jesus died, we get to go to heaven. And that's like the depth of the Christian theology. Sure, man does sin. Sure, Jesus absolutely did die. Something that Paul emphasizes here and, and elsewhere. And sure, heaven is a real place, which again, to reiterate, heaven is a real place that's actually coming to the earth. <laughs> that's another sermon for another time. But there's, a much more, there's much richer things to see here. It's like saying, if your version of Christianity is like that, that's like saying to someone, well, Amazing Grace is a good hymn with a few good notes. <laughs> no, there's much more to it than that. To flatten out the gospel message in this way is to miss the mountaintop, to miss the depths of the wisdom of God in bringing the covenant to pass in history. This may seem to some of you, well, this is quite boring. Can we wrap this up? <laughs> I think a lot of Christians think that because they don't see how this plays out in, in the rest of the world. Rather than putting the law over against faith, Paul does something completely different. It's not law in the Old Testament versus faith in the New Testament. That is not even close. That's not it. It's actually law as abused by Israel versus law as fulfilled by the faithfulness of Christ and given to his new Israel. That's the difference. Law as an abuse or as a means of demarcation from other people, as a means of self-righteousness, as a means of, hi, I'm a Christian. Why? Because I'm an obedient person. No, no, no. That's not why you're a Christian. <laughs> it's abuse of the law versus the faithfulness of Christ in fulfilling the law and giving it to his new Israel. That's the difference. And that's why Paul can say in verse 31 that he has established the law. So the law isn't a problem. The law itself isn't the problem, nor is it ever the problem. It's not as though God gave Israel the law just to see how high they could jump. And then as they trip over it, he laughs. Ha ha, you silly person. Look at you trying to earn your salvation. What a fool. That's not why God gave the law to Israel. The law is a grace because the law is part of the covenant. And God never abandons his covenant. That's the point. Because Christians largely don't understand covenant, they thus get the law wrong. So the corrective here. The corrective is how do men see themselves? How do you see yourself? That's the issue. 
For the Jew, they saw the law as a boundary marker, a line of demarcation, something that set them apart from the Gentiles. Instead of seeing the law as a gift to share, they saw it as a gift to hoard to themselves. Paul says, no, 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 no. You have trampled on this gift. See, what the Jews needed, indeed what the Gentiles needed as well, and all of us need, is to be declared in the right, not by doing the Torah, not by being marked out by the Torah, but rather exercising faith and then doing Torah. That's what we need as well. And the question I have as we finish, I have some questions real quick for you. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself clearly and soberly? Are you in Christ? Yes? Okay, then there's no condemnation, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation because Christ was the faithful one on your behalf. There is no condemnation for you, Christian, because Jesus was the mercy seat, blood atonement. There's no condemnation because Christ took your place. This means that we must not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ was faithful. He was faithful. He's the faithful Israelite. He's the faithful human being. He's the faithful God-man who came to rescue. Christ's faithfulness is the basis of your faithfulness. And faith isn't merely this set of dogmas that you ascend to, right? Like it's just this mental ascent. Ah, oh, yes, I, this is what I believe. No, no, no. Faith is a living faith, a total reliance on Christ, on his person, on his work. It is a new status. It's a new state of living within this covenant. And this covenant has a firm foundation on the righteousness and justice and the work of Christ. We rest in his sacrificial atonement. We rest in his faithfulness to the law word of God. We trust and we cling to his grace and mercy, not ours. See, the law does not justify, but that's not the same thing as saying that the law is a no longer necessary way of life for men and women and children in the covenant. We are in Christ. We are in the faithful Christ, and it is to him and for him that we owe the entirety of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a, a tough passage like this with a lot of nuance and a lot of things to consider. We thank you. We thank you for your word. And we are grateful that your word challenges us to not look to ourselves, but to look to you, to look to your son, Jesus, who is faithful. And we are, uh, <laughs> we are almost dumbfounded sometimes because the answer to much of our problems is, is very simple. Are we looking to Christ? Are we relying upon you, Lord Jesus? And we ask that your spirit would challenge us to do that. To not look at our own wisdom, our own power, our own gifts, but instead look to you. So we give this time to you today as we come to your table of, of grace, as we partake of this agape meal. Um, we glorify you in it. In Christ's name I pray, amen.